Book Second, Chapter Fourth, Parts Four to Six of Tono Bungay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Tono Bungay by H. G. Wells, Book Second, Chapter Fourth, Parts Four to Six. Four. I forget how many days intervened between the last breaking off of our engagement and Marion's surrender, but I recall now the sharpness of my emotion, the concentrated spirit of tears and laughter in my throat as I read the words of her unexpected letter. I have thought over everything, and I was selfish. I rushed off to Wallam Green that evening to give back all she had given me, to beat her altogether at giving. She was extraordinarily gentle and generous that time, I remember, and when at last I left her, she kissed me very sweetly. So we were married. We were married with all the customary incongruity. I gave, perhaps after a while not altogether ungrudgingly, and what I gave, Marion took, with a manifest satisfaction. After all, I was being sensible so that we had three livery carriages to the church, one of the pairs of horses matched, and coachmen, with improvised flavor and very shabby silk hats, bearing white favors on their whips, and my uncle intervened with splendor and insisted upon having a wedding breakfast sent in from a caterer's in Hammersmith. The table had a great display of chrysanthemums, and there was orange blossoms in the significant place, and a wonderful cake. We also circulated upwards of a score of wedges of that accompanied by silver-printed cards in which Marion's name of Ramboat was stricken out by an arrow in favor of Ponderevo. We had a little rally of Marion's relations, and several friends and friends' friends from Smithies appeared in the church and drifted vestryward. I produced my aunt and uncle, a select group of two. The effect in that shabby little house was one of exhilarating congestion. The sideboard, in which lived the tablecloth and the apartment's card, was used for a display of the presents, eked out by the unused balance of the silver-printed cards. Marion wore the white raiment of a bride, white silk and satin, that did not suit her, that made her seem larger and strange to me. She obtruded bows and unfamiliar contours. She went through all this strange ritual of an English wedding with a sacramental gravity that I was altogether too young and egotistical to comprehend. It was all extraordinarily central and important to her. It was no more than an offensive, complicated, and disconcerting intrusion of a world I was already beginning to criticize very bitterly to me. What was all this fuss for? the mere indecent advertisement that i had been passionately in love with marion i think however that marion was only very remotely aware of my smouldering exasperation at having in the end behaved nicely i had played up to the extent of dressing my part i had an admirably cut frock coat a new silk hat trousers as light as i could endure them lighter in fact a white waistcoat night tie light gloves. Marion, seeing me despondent, had the unusual enterprise to whisper to me that I looked lovely, 
I knew too well I didn't look myself. I looked like a special colored supplement to menswear, or the tailor and cutter, full dress for ceremonial occasions. I had even the disconcerting sensations of an unfamiliar collar. I felt lost, in a strange body, and when I glanced down myself for reassurance, the straight white abdomen, the alien legs confirmed that impression. My uncle was my best man, and looked like a banker, a little banker, in flower. He wore a white rose in his buttonhole. He wasn't, I think, particularly talkative. At least I recall very little from him. George, he said once or twice, this is a great occasion for you, a very great occasion. He spoke a little doubtfully. You see, I had told him nothing about Marion until about a week before the wedding. Both he and my aunt had been taken altogether by surprise. They couldn't, as people say, make it out. My aunt was intensely interested, much more than my uncle. It was then, I think, for the first time, that I really saw that she cared for me. She got me alone, I remember, after I had made my announcement. Now, George, she said, tell me everything about her. Why didn't you tell me, at least, before? I was surprised to find how difficult it was to tell her about Marion. I perplexed her. Then is she beautiful? she asked at last. I don't know what you'll think of her, I parried. I think, yes, I think she might be the most beautiful person in the world. And isn't she? To you? Of course, I said, nodding my head. Yes, she is. And while I don't remember anything my uncle said or did at the wedding, I do remember very distinctly certain little things, scrutiny, solicitude, a curious rare flash of intimacy in my aunt's eyes. It dawned on me that I wasn't hiding anything from her at all. She was dressed very smartly, wearing a big plumed hat that made her neck seem longer and slenderer than ever. And when she walked up the aisle with that rolling stride of hers, and her eye all on Marion, perplexed into self-forgetfulness, it wasn't somehow funny. She was, I do believe, giving my marriage more thought than I had done. She was concerned beyond measure at my black rage and Marion's blindness. She was looking with eyes that knew what loving is, for love. In the vestry she turned away as we signed, and I verily believe she was crying, though to this day I can't say why she should have cried, and she was near crying too when she squeezed my hand at parting, and she never said a word or looked at me, but just squeezed my hand. If I had not been so grim in spirit, I think I should have found much of my wedding amusing. I remember a lot of ridiculous detail that still declines to be funny in my memory. The officiating clergyman had a cold, and turned his ends to D's, and he made the most mechanical compliment conceivable about the bride's age when the register was signed. Every bride he had ever married had had it, one knew, and two middle-aged spinsters, cousins of Marion's and dressmakers at Barking, stand out. They wore marvelously bright and gay blouses and dim old skirts, and had an immense respect for Mr. Ramboat. They threw rice, they brought a whole bag with them, and gave handfuls away to unknown little boys at the church door, and so created a Lilliputian riot. 
and one had meant to throw a slipper. It was a very warm old silk slipper, I know, because she dropped it out of a pocket in the aisle. There was a sort of jumble in the aisle, and I picked it up for her. I don't think she actually threw it, for, as we drove away from the church, I saw her in a dreadful, and it seemed to me hopeless, struggle with her pocket, and afterwards my eye caught the missile of good fortune lying, it or its fellow, most obviously mislaid, behind the umbrella stand in the hall. The whole business was much more absurd, more incoherent, more human than I had anticipated, but I was far too young and serious to let the latter quality atone for its shortcomings. I am so remote from this phase of my youth that I can look back at it all as dispassionately as one looks at a picture, at some wonderful, perfect sort of picture that is inexhaustible. But at the time these things filled me with unspeakable resentment. Now I go round it all, look into its details, generalize about its aspects. I'm interested, for example, to square it with my Bladesover theory of the British social scheme. Under stress of tradition, we were all of us trying in the fermenting chaos of London to carry out the marriage ceremonies of a Bladesover tenant or one of the chubby middling sort of people in some dependent country town. There, a marriage is a public function with a public significance. There, the church is, to a large extent, the gathering place of the community, and you're going to be married a thing of importance to everyone you pass on the road. It is a change of status that quite legitimately interests the whole neighborhood. But in London, there are no neighbors. Nobody knows. Nobody cares. An absolute stranger in an office took my notice, and our bands were proclaimed to ears that had never previously heard our names. The clergyman, even, who married us had never seen us before, and didn't in any degree intimate that he wanted to see us again. Neighbors in London the Ramboats did not know the names of the people on either side of them. As I waited for Marion before we started off upon our honeymoon flight, Mr. Ramboat, I remember, came and stood beside me and stared out of the window. There was a funeral over there yesterday, he said, by way of making conversation, and moved his head at the house opposite. Quite a smart affair it was, with a glass earse and our little procession of three carriages with white favor-adorned horses and drivers went through all the huge, noisy, indifferent traffic like a lost china image in the coal chute of an ironclad. Nobody made way for us. Nobody cared for us. The driver of an omnibus jeered. For a long time we crawled behind an unamiable dust-cart. The irrelevant clatter and tumult gave a queer flavor of indecency to this public coming together of lovers. We seemed to have obtruded ourselves shamelessly. The crowd that gathered outside the church would have gathered in the same spirit and with a greater alacrity for a street accident. At Charing Cross, we were going to Hastings, the experienced eye of the guard detected the significance of our unusual costume, and he secured us a compartment. "'Well,' said I, as the train moved out of the station, "'that's all over.' And I turned to Marion, a little unfamiliar still in her unfamiliar clothes, and smiled. She regarded me gravely, timidly. "'You're not cross,' she asked. "'Cross? Why? And having it all proper. 
"'My dear Marion,' said I, and by way of answer took and kissed her white-gloved, leather-scented hand. I don't remember much else about the journey. An hour or so it was of undistinguished time, for we were both confused and a little fatigued, and Marion had a slight headache and did not want caresses. I fell into a reverie about my aunt, and realized, as if it were a new discovery, that I cared for her very greatly. I was acutely sorry I had not told her earlier of my marriage. But you will not want to hear the history of my honeymoon. I have told all that was needed to serve my present purpose. Thus and thus it was, the will in things had its way with me. Driven by forces I did not understand, diverted altogether from the science, the curiosities, and work to which I had once given myself, I fought my way through a tangle of traditions, customs, obstacles, and absurdities, enraged myself, limited myself, gave myself to occupations I saw with the clearest vision were dishonorable and vain, and at last achieved the end of purblind nature, the relentless immediacy of her desire, and held, far short of happiness, Marion, weeping and reluctant, in my arms. 5. Who can tell the story of the slow estrangement of two married people, the weakening of first this bond and then that of that complex contact? Least of all can one of the two participants, even now, with an interval of fifteen years to clear it up for me, I still find a mass of impressions of Marion as confused, as discordant, as unsystematic, and self-contradictory as life. I think of this thing and love her, of that and hate her, of a hundred aspects in which I can now see her with an unimpassioned sympathy." As I sit here trying to render some vision of this infinitely confused process, I recall moments of hard and fierce estrangement, moments of clouded intimacy, the passage of transition all forgotten. We talked a little language together, whence were friends, and I was Mutney, and she was Ming, and we kept up such an outward show that till the very end Smithy thought our household the most amiable in the world. I cannot tell to the full how Marion thwarted me, and failed in that life of intimate emotions which is the kernel of love. That life of intimate emotions is made up of little things. A beautiful face differs from an ugly one by a difference of surfaces and proportions that are sometimes almost infinitesimally small. I find myself setting down little things, and little things none of them do more than demonstrate those essential temperamental discords i have already sought to make clear some readers will understand to others i shall seem no more than an unfeeling brute who couldn't make allowances it's easy to make allowances now but to be young and ardent and to make allowances, to see one's married life open before one, the life that seemed in its dawn a glory, a garden of roses, a place of deep sweet mysteries, and heart-throbs, and wonderful silences, and to see it a vista of tolerations and baby-talk, a compromise, the least effectual thing in all one's life. Every love romance I read seemed to mock our dull intercourse. Every poem, every beautiful picture reflected upon the uneventful succession of grey hours we had together. I think our real difference was one of aesthetic sensibility. 
I do still recall as the worst and most disastrous aspect of all that time her absolute disregard of her own beauty. It's the prettiest thing to record, I know, but she could wear curl papers in my presence. It was her idea, too, to wear out her old clothes, and her failures at home when no one was likely to see her, no one being myself. She allowed me to accumulate a store of ungracious and slovenly memories. All our conceptions of life differed. I remember how we differed about furniture. We spent three or four days in Tottenham Court Road, and she chose the things she fancied with an inexorable resolution, sweeping aside my suggestions with, Oh, you want such queer things. She pursued some limited, clearly seen and experienced ideal that excluded all other possibilities. Over every mantel was a mirror that was draped, our sideboard was wonderfully good and splendid with beveled glass. We had lamps on long metal stalks and cozy corners and plants in grog tubs. Smithy approved it all. There wasn't a place where one could sit and read in the whole house. My books were upon shelves in the dining room recess. And we had a piano, though Marion's playing was at an elementary level. You know, it was the cruelest luck for Marion that I, with my restlessness, my skepticism, my constantly developing ideas, had insisted on marriage with her. She had no faculty of growth or change. She had taken her mold. She had set in the limited ideas of her peculiar class. She preserved her conception of what was right in drawing-room chairs and in marriage ceremonial and in every relation of life with a simple and luminous honesty and conviction with an immense unimaginative inflexibility, as a tailor bird builds its nest or a beaver makes its dam. Let me hasten over this history of disappointments and separation. I might tell of waxings and waning of love between us, but the whole was waning. Sometimes she would do things for me, make me a tie or a pair of slippers, and fill me with none the less gratitude because the things were absurd. She ran our home and our one servant with a hard, bright efficiency. She was inordinately proud of house and garden. Always, by her lights, she did her duty by me. Presently, the rapid development of Tono Bungay began to take me into the provinces, and I would be away sometimes for a week together. This she did not like. It left her dull, she said. But after a time, she began to go to Smithy's again, and to develop an independence of me. At Smithy's, she was now a woman with a position. She had money to spend. She would take Smithy to theatres and out to lunch, and talk interminably of the business, and Smithy became a sort of permanent weekender with us. Also, Marion got a spaniel, and began to dabble with the minor arts, with poker work, and a kodak, and hyacinths in glasses. She called once on a neighbor. Her parents left Wallam Green, her father severed his connection with the gas works, and came to live in a small house I took for them near us and they were much with us. Odd the littleness of the things that exasperate when the fountains of life are embittered. My father-in-law was perpetually catching me in moody moments and urging me to take to gardening. He irritated me beyond measure. You think too much, he would say. 
if you was to lit in a bit with a spade you might soon ave that garden of yours a vision of flowers that's better than thinking george or in a torrent of exasperation i can't think george why you don't get a bit of glass ear this sunny corner you could do wonders with a bit of glass and in the summer-time he never came in without performing a sort of conjuring trick in the hall and taking cucumbers and tomatoes from unexpected points of his person all out of my little bit he'd say in exemplary tones he left a trail of vegetable produce in the most unusual places on mantelboards sideboards the tops of pictures heavens how the sudden unexpected tomato could annoy me it did much to widen our estrangement that marion and my aunt failed to make friends became by a sort of instinct antagonistic my aunt to begin with called rather frequently for she was really anxious to know marion at first she would arrive like a whirlwind and pervade the house with an atmosphere of hello she dressed already with that cheerfully extravagant abandon that signalized her accession to fortune and dressed her best for these visits she wanted to play the mother to me i fancy to tell marion occult secrets about the way i wore out my boots and how i never could think to put on thicker things in cold weather but marion received her with that defensive suspiciousness of the shy person thinking only of the possible criticism of herself and my aunt perceiving this became nervous and slangy she says such queer things said marion once discussing her but i suppose it's witty yes i said it is witty if i said things like she does the queer things my aunt said were nothing to the queer things she didn't say i remember her in our drawing-room one day and how she cocked her eye it's the only expression, at the India-rubber plant in a Dalton-ware pot which Marion had placed on the corner of the piano. She was on the very verge of speech. Then suddenly she caught my expression and shrank up like a cat that has been discovered looking at the milk. Then a wicked impulse took her. Didn't say an old word, George, she insisted, looking me full in the eye. I smiled. You're a dear, I said, not to as marion came lowering into the room to welcome her but i felt extraordinarily like a traitor to the india rubber plant i suppose for all that nothing had been said your aunt makes game of people was marion's verdict and open-mindedly i suppose it's all right for her several times we went to the house in beckenham for lunch and once or twice to dinner my aunt did her peculiar best to be friends, but Marion was implacable. She was also, I know, intensely uncomfortable, and she adopted as her social method an exhausting silence, replying compactly and without giving openings to anything that was said to her. The gaps between my aunt's visits grew wider and wider. My married existence became, at last, like a narrow deep groove in the broad expanse of interests in which I was living. I went about the world. I met a great number of varied personalities. I read endless books in trains as I went to and fro. I developed social relationships at my uncle's house that Marion did not share. The seeds of new ideas poured in upon me and grew in me. Those early and middle years of one's third decade are, I suppose, for a man the years of greatest mental growth. 
they are restless years and full of vague enterprise. Each time I returned to Ealing, life there seemed more alien, narrow, and unattractive, and Marion less beautiful and more limited and difficult, until at last she was robbed of every particle of her magic. She gave me always a cooler welcome, I think, until she seemed entirely apathetic. I never asked myself then what heartache she might hide, or what her discontents might be. I would come home hoping nothing, expecting nothing. This was my fated life, and I had chosen it. I became more sensitive to the defects I had once disregarded altogether. I began to associate her sallow complexion with her temperamental insufficiency, and the heavier lines of her mouth and nostril with her moods of discontent. We drifted apart, wider and wider the gap opened. I tired of baby talk and stereotyped little fondlings. I tired of the latest intelligence from those wonderful workrooms, and showed it all too plainly. We hardly spoke when we were alone together. The mere unreciprocated physical residue of my passion remained an exasperation between us. No children came to save us. Marion had acquired at Smithy's a disgust and dread of maternity. All that was the fruition and quintessence of the horrid elements in life, a disgusting thing, a last indignity that overtook unwary women. I doubt, indeed, a little if children would have saved us. We should have differed so fatally about her upbringing. Altogether, I remember my life with Marion as a long distress, now hard, now tender. It was in those days that I first became critical of my life, and burdened with a sense of error and maladjustment. I would lie awake in the night, asking myself the purpose of things, reviewing my unsatisfying, ungainly home life, my day spent in rascal enterprise and rubbish selling, contrasting all I was being and doing with my adolescent ambitions, my Wimblehurst dreams. My circumstances had an air of finality, and I asked myself in vain why I had forced myself into them. 6. The end of our intolerable situation came suddenly and unexpectedly, but in a way that I suppose was almost inevitable. My alienated affections wandered, and I was unfaithful to Marion. I won't pretend to extenuate the quality of my conduct. I was a young and fairly vigorous male. All my appetite for love had been roused and whetted, and none of it had been satisfied by my love affair and my marriage. I had pursued an elusive gleam of beauty to the disregard of all else, and it had failed me. It had faded when I had hoped it would grow brighter. I despaired of life and was embittered, and things happened as I am telling. I don't draw any moral at all in the matter, and as for social remedies, I leave them to the social reformer. I've got to a time of life when the only theories that interest me are generalizations about realities. To go to our inner office in Raggett Street, I had to walk through a room in which the typists worked. They were the correspondence typists. Our books and invoicing had long since overflowed into the premises we had had the luck to secure on either side of us. I was, I must confess, always in a faintly, cloudily, emotional way aware of that collection of, for the most part, round-shouldered femininity. But presently one of the girls detached herself from the others and got a real hold upon my attention. 
I appreciated her at first as a straight little back, a neater back than any of the others, as a softly rounded neck with a smiling necklace of sham pearls, as chestnut hair, very neatly done, and as a sidelong glance, presently as a quickly turned face that looked for me. My eye would seek her as I went through on business things. I dictated some letters to her, and so discovered she had pretty, soft-looking hands with pink nails. Once or twice, meeting casually, we looked one another for the flash of a second in the eyes. That was all, but it was enough in the mysterious Freemasonry of sex to say essential things. We had a secret between us. One day I came into Ragged Street at lunchtime, and she was alone, sitting at her desk. She glanced up as I entered, and then became very still, with a downcast face and her hands clenched on the table. I walked right by her to the door of the inner office, stopped, came back, and stood over her. We neither of us spoke for quite a perceptible time. I was trembling violently. "'Is that one of the new typewriters?' I asked, at last, for the sake of speaking." She looked up at me without a word, with her face flushed and her eyes alight, and I bent down and kissed her lips. She leant back to put an arm about me, drew my face to her, and kissed me again and again. I lifted her and held her in my arms. She gave a little smothered cry to feel herself so held. Never before had I known the quality of passionate kisses. Somebody became audible in the shop outside. We started back from one another, with flushed faces and bright and burning eyes. "'We can't talk here,' I whispered, with a confident intimacy. "'Where do you go at five? "'Along the embankment, to Charing Cross,' she answered as intimately. "'None of the others go that way.' "'About half-past five? "'Yes, half-past five. The door from the shop opened, and she sat down very quickly. "'I'm glad.' I said, in a commonplace voice, that these new typewriters are all right. I went into the inner office and routed out the pay sheet in order to find her name, Effie Rink, and did no work at all that afternoon. I fretted about that dingy little den like a beast in a cage. When presently I went out, Effie was working with an extraordinary appearance of calm, and there was no look for me at all. We met and had our talk that evening, a talk in whispers when there was none to overhear. We came to an understanding. It was strangely unlike any dream of romance I had ever entertained. End of Book Second, Chapter Fourth, Parts Four to Six Recording by William Tomko